Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you this morning. I want to call your attention to a couple of things. I want to thank Kelly Daly for joining us at the keyboards. Get a twofer with uh, Ben. Thank you. Also want to call your attention to the far panel on your left to my right. Um, this is where we are in the story of Christ's uh, death and resurrection, Christ being taken down from the cross and put in a grave. And I also want to call to uh, your attention to the fact that uh, Marta Burke has made all of these. If you ever see Marta, thank her for incredible work. This is no small feat. Ask her how she did that because it is uh, quite an artistic um, uh, endeavor and uh, something that she's done out of uh, her love for the Lord. So when you see Marta, ask her how she did that, but thank her also for her, um, for her service. With that, I would like you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 19. Continuing in our study, we're going to look this morning at uh, John 19, verses 31 through 42. So John chapter 19, verses 31 through 42. If you are able and you have a copy of God's Word with you, I invite you to please stand as we read this passage of Scripture. Please uh, pay attention to the reading of God's Word and to his message to us this morning. John 19, beginning in verse 31, the word of God. Then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man, and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus, bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. And God's people said, Amen. Thank you. Be seated, please. Father, we're grateful for your word, which is powerful and often, perhaps every time we read it, it would be enough to just sit down and contemplate and dismiss you've given us a ministry of preaching and teaching and proclaiming the gospel. We pray for 
your servants who are inadequate, who are throughout the world preaching your message today. Pray that your word would teach us this morning. For we come to you, God, not because of any good thing in us, but through the righteousness of Christ, revealed but also imputed to us, given to us, we're clothed in it, because he was crucified as a righteous lamb of God, but also rose again because of our faith. And so teach us, Lord, how we should respond to this great death of sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf. Would you train us? Would you, would you help us, Father, to see our way clear in this dark world through Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. So how do you respond to the death of Christ? What is the fitting response to him? What is the the thing that we should do? How should we respond to the death of Christ? Some people deny it. Some people disbelieve. Many try and just explain it away. Um, Or you can be undone by it. And changed by it, I have been. My life since the cross of Christ, I was undone and my life has changed by his design and that's his design for you as well. Our response to the death of Christ. In our passage, we're going to see three different responses to his death. Um, the first is the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers. The pilot part of that as well. Then we're going to see the response of John himself as he tells the story. He pauses for a minute and he, if you noticed as we were reading it, he gets to this point of describing that, that Jesus' bones were not broken and his side was pierced. And he said, I've got to tell you, this is what happened that you might believe. It's his response. Then we see a response of these two men because of these two prophecies fulfilled. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, whom we have not seen since the beginning of the book, they have seen the death of Christ, and they are changed by it. And so should we be as well. But we also see along the way um, God's, compl- God's plan continuing to unfold. We've, we've talked about that throughout um, the book of John, particularly when we got to chapter 12 and we began talking about the hour of his suffering, how everything is unfolding just as planned. Everything is unfolding just as God has planned to to give his only son. And we have seen even along the way in in the arrest of Jesus and the trials of Jesus and the mocking and the scourging and, and even going to the cross, even though these religious leaders think that they're in charge and Pilate thinks that he's calling the shots, there is only one who's in charge and that is God. And even Christ himself is is is. He is in charge of his own life and his own death. For we saw last week as we finished that, uh, that, that the message given to us by Chris that was so moving that Jesus ends with these words, it is finished. And the last words we saw, and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. His life was not taken from him. He gave his life. 
as we saw earlier in John chapter 10, he is the the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life on his own initiative. He has the initiative and the power to lay it down and to take it up, and that's what he is doing in our verses today and next week. He has laid down his life for us in that moment that wrath was poured out upon him. It wasn't wrath for wrath's sake. It wasn't God mad at or angry with his son. It was wrath for our sin, for the things that we have committed. And so the plan continues to unfold, and we see, first and foremost, this response in verses 31 through 34. We see a cruel and a final indignity. A cruel and a final indignity. We see a callous and uncaring attitude toward Jesus' death and his body. There's this, this attitude toward the dead. Even though the Jews don't even realize that he's dead, but it is cruel, this indignity that is perpetrated upon him in these verses. Verse 31, then the Jews, and this is, by the way, the last time we will see Uh, the Jewish leaders in John's gospel. It's the last time in this passage we're going to see Pilate and his so-called authority. The Jews think that they're, they're still in charge. Pilate thinks that he's still in charge with his authority. Remember what Jesus said to him, you don't have any authority except what has been granted to you from, from God for the purpose of the gospel. And so the Jews, still thinking they're, they're in charge, it was the day of preparation They didn't want the bodies to remain on the cross because it was not just the the Sabbath that was approaching, but it was a high Sabbath. Remember, Jesus was crucified on Friday. Friday night begins the Sabbath. This time of year in April, it would have been about 6 p.m. And he dies about 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And so there are about three more hours between the death of Christ and the time in which uh, the Sabbath will begin. And they don't want the bodies on the cross. Why not? Because in Deuteronomy 21, it says, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is the curse of God. Elsewhere, that says that is fulfilled in Jesus. He is cursed of God because he was hung on a tree. So that, it goes on to say, that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. So they have a problem, the Jews do, that is. They have these two criminals, and they have Jesus hanging on the cross. The Sabbath is coming, Sabbath is coming in a few short hours. We can't have dead bodies hanging around. That doesn't look good. We have a feast that's coming up. Not only is this uh, Sabbath fall during Passover, but it's a transition from Passover to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So it is a high and holy day. It is a very special Sabbath, and we can't have this for the sake of appearances, for the sake of the law. When men were crucified by the Romans, it usually took several days for them to die. It was a slow and excruciating death, and ultimately they died by asphyxiation. And just the long haul of suffering, you know, they were, their hands were nailed to the cross beam and their feet were nailed to the upright and they had a, a little platform on which they could stand. And uh, just due to exhaustion, they would, they would slump down like this. And then they couldn't breathe. So they pushed themselves up with their legs. <sighs> they could catch, catch their breath again. And over time, over time, they would just give out. 
And the Romans would leave them on the cross for those days until they died and then afterwards so that the vultures could come and pick at them and as an object lesson to those around that, hey, we're in charge. It was cruel and it was horrible. It was callous. So they wanted the men to have their legs broken. In Latin, this is called the cura fragium. It was a, 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 something that they actually did with a metal mallet, like a sledgehammer. And uh, to hasten death, they would come and they would break the shin bones of the criminals. Have you ever got up in the middle of the night and bumped your shin bone into something? You know how there's a more pain receptors, it seems, there than most other places, and it's just then you have this goose egg for a couple of weeks. Can you imagine this metal mallet and coming along and whack, breaking their legs? Why did they do that? So that they couldn't push themselves up to breathe, and so when they sunk down, actually they would asphyxiate, be asphyxiated in just a very, very short time. And we had to have that happen. Because we can't have the sun going down, and we can't have these men dying and messing up the party. So the soldiers came, and they come to the first man, and whack, and whack. And can you imagine the screams as he slumps down? And then they come to the second man, and whack, and whack. And can you imagine the second scream as he slumps down? And they come to Jesus and they see that he's already dead. How would they know that? These guys are professionals. Professional executioners. They know death when they see it. If you are acquainted with death and you have seen this, you know that um, when someone's heart stops beating and they breathe their last, it doesn't take long for a death power to come upon a person's face. As their face drained with blood, it becomes ashen very, very quickly. So they knew that they could see by his face, by the color of his skin, that he was dead, but they also knew that he wasn't, he was just slumped down. He wasn't breathing, he wasn't trying to push himself up, and they knew he was dead. So one of the one of the soldiers comes with a spear. And it is said that the spear had a metal head that was shaped like an egg and about a handbreadth wide. So you can imagine the wound that it, would, it would, would cause. And he ran him through with the spear, not all the way through, but he pierced his side with the spear. And he didn't just poke him to see if he would move. No, he pierced his body cavity. And it says, out flowed blood and water. Now, much has been written about this, uh, the blood and the water. What does it mean? Um, I think that there is some significance that I cannot uh, uh, say with all certainty what it is. I think the real certainty is this. He was dead. It indicates that he was dead. I think that's the main certainty. But the water and the blood come out and um, many, many interpretations as to what that means. Um, they've actually tested this on cadavers to find out what was, you know, what was the physiology that was taking place, that blood and water would come out at the same time. Some people think that uh, his pericardium in his heart was, was pierced. Some of you have had your, 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 your chest cracked and you've had that pericardium opened up for open heart surgery. 
And so some think that that's what it was, that uh, out came from the spear, the, the fluid from the sack around the heart and blood from the body cavity. I don't know for certain. We don't know for certain. Again, I think the significance is that he's dead. Some people think that his heart just exploded because of the, the great intense pain. And I, don't, I, I think we need to be careful because then I've read commentators who have say, said that he died of a broken heart. We have to be very careful of that. Jesus did not die of a broken heart because when you hear, when you hear that said, it sounds like he was so sad and he was so upset that he just, he just, his heart stopped breathing. He was a beating. He died of a broken heart. No, he died because he gave up his spirit. He died willingly. He gave his spirit up for us and he was in control even of his last breath and his last heartbeat. But we need to go back to the motivation of the Jews. What were they all about? The irony, once again, and one writer says this whole, this whole, this verse, these three verses are, are dripping with irony. The irony of just putting to death the Lord of glory and worried about appearances. They just murdered the guy. And they're worried about how it's going to look. To others, for them, the show must go on. I think the Romans, though, had nothing on the Jews when it comes to callousness, when it comes to being uncaring and cruel. They just want Jesus done away with. Let's make sure this guy is really dead. They don't care about the, the two criminals. They just want to make sure that he's done with forever. The response is callous, it's uncaring. And what do we learn from that? We learn this. The last indignity is a caution to us that we not become callous to our sin because of grace. This last indignity, which is cruel and callous, should be a caution for us that we don't become callous to our own sin because we get so used to grace. You've heard me say this before, and I know all of grace. We're saved by grace through faith. It is all of grace, but sometimes it is easy for us to presume on God's grace. We do the opposite of what these leaders were doing. What they were doing is um, they were guilty of large sins and excusing them for keeping the law. Oftentimes we do the opposite where we, uh, we excuse small sins for the sake of grace because we're not as bad as others we can do this excuse pornography because one's not actually committing adultery excuse anger toward a spouse or children or family members because well you're not literally murdering someone now right excuse envy or gossip because the person you're talking about deserves it and because, because it's true. We can ex excuse our greed and our materialism, which Paul said amounts to idolatry, because we reason that, well, I haven't really made an idol that I'm bowing down to now, am I? So we need to be careful and not be too judgmental of the religious leaders, for we can be 
guilty of the same thing of being callous toward the death of Christ and forgetting what it accomplished. And that all those small sins and those large sins all paid for when it was finished. So this cruel and final indignity was the first response. The second in verses 35 through 7, a response, a credible and unfading testimony. We see a positive. That's the only negative we see here. But here we see a, a credible and unfading testimony. John is moved by the death of Christ. It un, he is undone by it. He he tells the story that his bones were just unbroken and he was his side was pierced. And he says in verse 35, because he was so moved by it and and notice the words that I've emboldened. He who has seen has testified and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth. So that you also may believe. In the midst of telling this story, and he comes back to the, the story of his legs being unbroken and his, his side being pierced, he's overcome and he says, I've got to say something at this juncture. It's really, really important. I saw this happen. I testify to it. I am telling you the truth. I describe it so that you might believe. You need to believe this. Jesus really died. John gives this important commentary, and I think it only rivals what happens at the end of the next chapter. The the key verses of the book we've come back to over and over again, 20, 30, and 31. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Here he says the same thing. You may have life in his name, but here he says, I I saw this with my own eyes, and I'm telling you this so that you may believe. He was pausing for those who are reading the gospel, his letter, his audience, us, because we're reading it. And he paused at this juncture to say, I describe these things of truth so that you might believe in the Son of God. It's for the reader. Reminds me of the gospel Paul gave in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures. 1935 ends the he died portion 20, 30, and 31 ends the he rose from the dead portion. Chapter 20 is about the resurrection. But John also, I believe, had another thought in mind. His gospel was the last of the gospels written, and by that time there were heresies already that were, uh, that were arising in the church, and one of those heresies was uh, docetism. And it, was, yeah, it comes from the Greek word dakeo, which means to seem or to appear. And there were those who were believing according to the, the descetics and the Gnostics that Jesus really didn't live in a human body. He only seemed to be human. He only appeared to die, but he didn't really die. And he didn't really, he wasn't really one who came in the flesh. 
But the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John tells that very clearly. And so he starts there. The word, word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he gets to this portion where he says, I saw him die. You must believe that. In 1 John chapter 1 John says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands, that is Jesus, concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. He really did come in the flesh. He really did die a death in the flesh. John, 1 John 4, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. So those who say that he did not really live in the flesh, he was not really human, he was not really divine, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. And John is telling us in John chapter 19, Jesus died physically for our sins. Literally. Physically. Of course, in the modern day, the liberals tell us what's often called the swoon theory, that um, Jesus was mortally, not mortally wounded, but he was badly wounded. And because he was so thirsty and so hungry and, and lost so much food, he fainted on the cross. They took him down. They put him in a cool, dark tomb where he slept it off for a couple of days. And on Sunday morning, he woke up, woke up and ready to face the world. It's not what happened. John takes very, very careful steps to describe for us that Jesus is dead. So we have an ironclad death and an ironclad burial so that we have an ironclad resurrection that we will see next week. He really died. So it's not so much the issue of the blood and the water that John is emphasizing, but he is, but that he is establishing that Jesus really died in the flesh. 36 and 37, these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Not a bone will be broken. Exodus 12, 46, speaking of the Passover lamb, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And this is the fulfillment in John chapter 19 that no bone was broken. Earlier in that chapter where Moses is describing for us the, 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 the Passover and how it is to be celebrated, he says, Your lamb shall be unblemished, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or the goats. You shall keep it on the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Christ is our Passover. And that his bones were not broken ensures that Jesus is the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was innocent. He was sinless. He, was, he possessed perfect righteousness and innocence. 
but we do not. Therefore, he died in our place. He was tempted in all things as we are, the writer of Hebrews says, and yet without sin. He was tempted in everything that you were tempted in. He was tempted in everything that you've ever been tempted in and you have succumbed to and that you continue to succumb to. But he did not sin. But we continued to succumb to those temptations, and it was those sins that he bore on the cross because he did not succumb ever because he was sinless, unblemished, perfect. You know, he, he didn't just, uh, he wasn't just tempted uh, in the wilderness by the devil. His entire life, I believe, was a temptation. He was, he was tempted to pride at times. He was tempted to anger. He was tempted to gossip. He was tempted to other sins of the tongue. He was, he was tempted to immorality. He was tempted to drunkenness. He was tempted to, to uh, gluttony. He was tempted to lack of forgiveness. Everything that you have been tempted with and you have succumbed to, he was tempted with, as it says in, in, in Hebrews, and yet without sin. But we have succumbed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Or in the words of the great hymn, mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Zechariah is the other passage that is quoted here. In that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants in Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a, a firstborn. Zechariah is forecasting the future when the nation of Israel will come back and believe in Christ the Messiah. Because he goes on to say that this is the day of the Spirit of the Lord being poured out upon them. goes on in verse 13, chapter 13, verse 1. In that day, a fountain will be opened up for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. Perhaps the reference to the water and the blood. The fountain. Symbolic. Revelation 1-7, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. It is a surety. He's coming back, and before he comes back, the nation will turn back to him, and when he comes, they will see him whom they have, have pierced, and they will realize that they have crucified the Lord of glory, and the entire world will see it. D.A. Carson put it this way, just as the Jews in Zechariah 12 wept in contrition and repentance when they saw the one whom they pierced, how much more will the nations of the earth mourn at the parousia, the appearing, when they see the exalted and returning Christ coming in glory, the Christ whose followers they have been persecuting, the Christ whom they pierced since it was their sins who sent him to the cross. Putting this all together, the references of Zechariah and the piercing 
Zechariah promised that a shepherd would come. And we know that that shepherd came, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And 13.1, in that day a fountain will be opened up for the cleansing of Israel. The flow of blood and water from Jesus' side. Perhaps, and I can't say this with all certainty, speaks of the promise of the Spirit, John 7. Those who believe from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water and the cleansing of life that comes from the new birth. When John talked to, when Jesus talked to Nicodemus and told him you must be born of water and of spirit. In any case, this is the necessity for a real death of a real Savior. It's not a mythical story. It's not a fanciful story. It's true in history, in time, and in space. So, we too have a credible and unfading testimony. Just as, just as John had a testimony, he said, you guys got to listen to me here. This is important. I saw this, that his bones were not broken. I saw that that his side was pierced, and, that, and I saw that these fulfilled the scriptures. And I'm telling you this, that you might believe we have the same testimony given to us. John 20, 29. Jesus saying to his disciples, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. That is us. We weren't there. We weren't eyewitnesses. But with the eyes of faith, by those who have recorded it, by the in scripturation by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we read all of the accounts, and the Spirit of God testifies to us and opens our minds to understand. With the eyes of faith, we understand and we see the death of Christ ourselves. If we don't, then we are not saved. We see it as well. It is a testimony that is based upon historical fact. It is based upon truth. It is based upon fulfilled scriptures and so when we give our testimony it's not just about oh god loves you and my life is better because of him no it's christ died and he rose and he washed away my sin forever and if you believe as god's elect so will you have your sins washed away so we are to believe in and testify to the true and historical fact that Jesus of Nazareth came in human flesh and he died a human death as the Son of Man and the Son of God. And when he did that, he identified with our weaknesses. He knows all your weaknesses. He knows your temptations. He knows the, he knows the things that you succumb to. They're not hidden from him. But he was tempted in all things and yet without sin, and he is the one that we go to when we are weak. He was thirsty. He was hungry. He got colds and flu. Maybe he got COVID. I don't know. He, but he had, he had all sorts of problems like any human being, and he lived a life where he could identify with us. The one thing he did not identify with was he does not know what it's like to sin. just as we do not know what it's like to be perfect. And so we identify with his righteousness by his death. And by that, we're undone. Our testimony is credible. It means it is believable, so that you may believe. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
the gospel message is powerful and it is unfading and we should never be ashamed of the cross of Christ. We should never be ashamed of the blood of Christ as if, oh, I don't want to really talk about those things. That's what saves us. We have no hope apart from the cross and apart from the blood of Christ. And this gospel never fades. It only gets brighter and brighter and brighter until the return of Christ and all the world will see the one who was pierced. That's what we look forward to. That is our hope. So there's this response of a cruel and final indignity, a credible and unfading testimony that we have. And finally, in verses 38 through 42, a courageous and fitting honorarium. These two men come out of the shadows with great courage, and they give to Jesus honor that is fitting for a king. It's an honorarium. Do you know what an honorarium is? Some of those who are, who are in ministry, you know, from time to time, um, we do funerals or weddings, and an honorarium is something that's given as a gift for services rendered. And even though we tell people always up front that we don't charge for our services, there's no fee for the gospel. People oftentimes in their kindness will give gifts of honorarium. Um, when I was, uh, on the day that I was ordained, um, a man that I, I admire greatly gave me a book and said, I want you to read this chapter in this book by A.W. Tozier. And the, it's called a, a per, The Prayer of a Minor Prophet. And I read it on that day, and I continue to read it often because it so lays out uh, the work of a minister of the gospel. And it says this about accepting things from people. Tozier praying on the day of his ordination. He said, I accept hard work and small rewards in this life. I ask for no easy place. I shall try to be blind to the little ways that could make life easier. If others seek the smoother path, I shall try to take the hard way without judging them too harshly. I shall expect opposition and try to take it quietly when it comes. Or if, as sometimes it falleth out to thy servants, I should have grateful gifts pressed upon me by thy kindly people. Stand by me then and save me from the blight that often follows. Teach me to use whatever I receive in such manner that will not injure my soul nor diminish my spiritual power. And if in thy permissive providence honor should come to me from thy church, let me not forget that in that hour that I am not worthy of the least of thy mercies, and that if men knew me as intimately as I know myself, they would withhold their honors or bestow them on others more worthy to receive them. Why? Because I am not worthy. And the, any of you who have been in ministry or are in ministry, you know that we are not worthy. We are not worthy of good gifts and praise for ministry and attaboy, great sermon. Thank you, take this gift, because we know our frame. And I, I know some of you are going to say, yeah, but, yeah, but I'm going to, if we compliment you, you should accept it, you know, graciously and humbly. Yeah, I'm talking about the, the, greater, the greater story here. 
None of us are worthy, right? Who is worthy? Who alone is worthy of praise? Who alone is worthy of our sacrifice? Who alone is worthy of our service? Who alone? And it is Christ alone. And in comparison to him, we are not worthy of anything. Any praise that comes our way, all we can look forward to is one day the greatest praise of all. Well done, good and faithful servant. He is worthy. Verse 38, after these things, sometime later, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, he asked Pilate, they might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. This is the only place that Joseph of Arimathea appears in John's gospel. He appears in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Nicodemus only appears in John's gospel. So when you put together what the other gospels say about Joseph of Arimathea, we see this. He had become a disciple of Jesus. He was a disciple in secret. He feared the Jews. He was a prominent member of the council. He was a wealthy man. He was good and righteous. He had not consented to the council's plans to put Jesus to death. He was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered courage to ask of Pilate Jesus' body. This man was a secret disciple. Something changed. Nicodemus also, verse 39, who had first come to him by night. John makes that very clear. Why did Nicodemus come to Jesus by night back in chapter 3? He didn't want anybody to see him. He also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. This is a lot, more, not, not 100 pounds in our poundage, but about 70, 60 to 75 pounds. This was a lot of expensive, lavish, Perfume and ointments to give to the king. A fitting honorarium. A last act of love. These two men have this in common. They were stealth disciples. And at this point, neither one of them had anything to gain, did they? They had watched the death of Christ. They had been silent and behind the scenes. Now when he dies, you'd think, well, let's go back to the the shadows. No, this is when they come out of the shadow. And they did more than the, the public followers of Jesus, because where are they at this point? Blew the coop. But they give the burial of a king. Brothers and sisters, whatever past failures you have had, how you handle the death of Jesus can affect and help you to become a faithful disciple if you really understand what he's done. I think they failed. I don't think we should judge them too harshly because their, their, their story has changed. Like all people's stories, Peter is gonna, Jesus is going to confront Peter in a, in a couple of chapters and, and all will be well once again. That is the kind of Savior that we have. He is gracious with us when we fail him. But the death of Jesus all of a sudden has changed these men. It is the motivation for them to become faithful disciples out in the open. We don't know what cost it was to them professionally. But you know that they must have been castigated. They might have become pariahs. But they come out of the shadows. Are you a secret disciple? Have you ever played that game uh, where you, you go to someone's house and 
and said, we're going to play a game, and, and you write down three things that nobody knows about you. And what if you were to write down, I am a Christian? And it comes around, they're trying to figure out who it is. And they can't figure it out. Oh, that's me. Really? I didn't know that about you. These things ought not to be, brothers. Or the old saying that, uh, and this could happen more and more in the days in which we live. If you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict? Don't be a secret disciple. Because he's worthy. He alone is worthy of whatever it costs us to walk with him. So we see the fitting honorarium in the last verses. They took the body of Jesus. They bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. As a criminal, he would have just been thrown on an ash heap, unceremoniously given to the birds and to the fires burning of Gehenna. And yet he gets a proper... Jewish burial, but he also is given a king's burial. He is the king in his death. He is the king in his burial. He is the king in his resurrection that we'll begin to look at next week. Isaiah 53, 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Continuing fulfill prophecy prophecy god telling us i'm in control of everything that is happening every detail of the story and the place where he was crucified there was a garden and in the garden the tomb in which no one had yet been laid therefore because of the jewish day of preparation since the tomb was nearby they laid jesus there think about that the first adam sinned in the garden was cast out of the garden The last Adam, crucified in a garden, he was innocent, placed in a tomb in a garden, and he will break forth, we'll see this next week, Easter's coming next week, and he will once and for all break the power of sin. Our last Adam, by his resurrection. So this is rather long, but I would like you to see this. If we are not shaken by the enormity of Christ's suffering to the necessity that we die to self and follow him, then we probably have not fully understood the significance of his death for us. We should be undone. We should be broken. Nicodemus and Joseph, their lives were changed. John, transformed. Peter, transformed. You, me. By what he did and by our understanding of it fully and faith in him, we are changed. We're transformed. Again, don't be ashamed of the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ. Galatians 6.14 says, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ through whom which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We've died to the world. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God 
who loved me and gave himself. He gave himself for me. So, the conclusion of the matter is this. Like these two men, our service to Christ should be open and courageous, sacrificial and willing. Shouldn't it be glad and joyful, open before the world, sacrificial? So the question is, what gift do you have for the king? What is fitting? 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 Sounds like I'm from Green Acres. What's fitting? Sometimes I just slip into it. But what gift do you bring? What is fitting? Given his worth, given his work, given his person, what do we bring? You know what we bring? We bring ourselves. We bring our lives. We die to self that we might live to Christ. That's what we bring. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of all that he did in Romans chapter 1 through 11, all the theology that explains the cross, that you present your bodies, your life, a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. God, I give you myself, dead to sin, alive to Christ Jesus. Another thing that we give is a sacrifice of praise, is a fitting sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13, it says this, Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For we do not have a lasting city here, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Ever, every day, offering up to him thanksgiving and praise, always praising him for his life, his death, his resurrection. It is fitting. Tonight, we are going to have a prayer meeting and an opportunity if you have been so affected by the death of Christ. Come and offer a sacrifice of praise. I know Greg Lundy's in charge of this and he wants to focus on praising God. How fitting is that? That the night that Jesus with his, was with his disciples and, and he left them to pray and he said, couldn't you keep watch for just an hour? 6.30 to 7.30, come for one hour and watch with us. Bring your kids, bring your babes in arms. Stand up, walk around, let's just pray and praise God and give to him sacrifice of our lips because of what he has done for us. Now I'd like you to prepare your communion cup. And as we do, I would like to call your attention to the screen of the words of an old hymn by Fanny Crosby. Jesus, keep me near the cross. The bread and the cup, the body and the blood. Paul said to us in 1 Corinthians that when we partake of this, we declare the Lord's death until he comes, till he, 
till he comes back and we see him whom we have pierced. Until that day, we declare the Lord's death by partaking and remembering that he really did come in the flesh in a human body. He really did die. And he really did cleanse us of our sins once for all. Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain. Free to all, a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. You sing that with me? Jesus, keep me near the cross. There a precious fountain free to all a healing stream flows from Calvary's mountain. In the cross, in the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. Father, we give ourselves to you as living sacrifices because Christ died and rose again. We remember that he came in the flesh and gave his body and suffered. We remember that he was pierced for our transgressions and he has cleansed us of all unrighteousness. And we declare this until he returns and makes us whole and we will, we'll, we'll, we will be as we are designed to be restored in him. In his name we pray, amen. And Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. can't tell you what a joy it is, and I know, to, to stand up here and to see God's people together as a family, taking communion together with one voice, declaring, this is our stand, Christ Jesus. Would you stand? We're going to, let's just sing that chorus one more time. In the cross... In the cross, be my glory ever, till my raptured soul shall find rest beyond the river. And God's people did say, Amen. Go in his grace, go in his peace.